Hello and welcome to the weekly governance update from VLGA Connect, your go-to place for all the useful, uh, for all the information that we think of at the time to share with you from governance around the sector. Hello, Stephen Cooper. Hello, Chris Eddy. My hours of diligent preparation for this session have just been blown apart, but thank you. <laughs> Indeed. No, always good to talk. And of course, the top, uh, the top of the list this week is the new, I've got to get the title right, Governance and Integrity Regulations 2020, released in draft. I'm sure you've read them front to back. I'd love to say right. I had a diligent look. I have been through them, Chris, and... Um, it would be no surprise to say there's no great surprises. The purpose of this as an instrument, uh, Steve, what, what is it aiming to do? I think to, to put more detail around those high level conduct principles that are in, in the Act, Chris, to, to be an explainer and to be the midpoint, I suppose, Chris, between the Act at the high level and that code of conduct, which will describe in a local context, the conduct expectations agreed between the Council in that wider yes. Context. Yeah. So, so I think I flagged this last week, a question that often comes up through the candidate information workshops and things that we, we do is, you know, why isn't there just one code of conduct that every council or at every council is required to adopt? Um, it goes to this issue of ownership and buy-in, doesn't it? And it's all, in a sense, Chris, if you look at it in that frame, it is all about best practice leadership, that leaders, um, as part of their role, set tone at the top. And in fact, there's a a strongly held um, theory that if leaders aren't setting um, tone at the top, aren't managing culture, what is their purpose? So really it's an important function for the organisation. So my understanding is this uh, document is out for consultation until the 11th of September. It covers things that you'd expect, such as the oath and affirmation of office, um, personal interest returns, etc., but also standards of uh, behaviour, conduct expected of, of councils. I know you uh, were pleased to see a list of exemptions for where a conflict of interest would not arise. Have I got that right? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. And I think, you know, material conflicts of interest, where they can be measured in dollar terms, are usually quite self-evident. But that question around what's a general conflict, what would be a perceived conflict, having a list of, um, you know, those sort of things that we would expect, like if the interest is uh, quite immaterial, if um, there's no reasonable prospect um, that the decision would be influenced, an interest in common that you would expect. It's good to have those so that when people, when councillors or officers make a decision to stay in the room, if you like, that they can articulate the reasons around that sort of framework. I was interested to see too that this is linked directly to what needs to be contained in the induction training program for councillors, which has got to happen in the first six months of the next term. Well, isn't it the starting point of a conversation through the life of the council, Chris? And you would know that there are numerous issues that it's healthy for the council, the councillors as a group and the council and the executive to talk about regularly so people aren't blindsided, you know. And we know that if organisations um, ignore notions of conflict of interest, then it's easier for people to sort of say, oh, well, so-and-so didn't, therefore I shouldn't. And you then just develop a culture where we don't pay attention to what is actually a really important element of public trust. So there's a real uh, useful body of information building up now on the uh, engage.vic.gov.au website for the Local Government Act, isn't there? It's becoming a really rich resource. So there's now this, uh, this document and the opportunity for people to read it and comment, make suggestions, etc. And I think that's open until around the 11th of September. 
That's true. And Chris, I and I know the department are really keen for councillors to comment on that content. And I, I think there's two parts to this. One is yes, by all means comment. But as we've talked about before, um, the content isn't really surprising. And so I'm not sure where the nuancing will be around that. A really important thing I think for councillors and executives to think about is how are we going to have these con conversations that make the code of conduct not just um, a compliance exercise, but part of the way that we do business to make us an employer of choice to set the tone so we deliver the best services for community. So uh, can I flag that next week, Friday the 4th of September, here comes the plug, you, I feel like you knew this was coming. Um, we've got uh, an, another uh, top-notch panel assembled, David Wolf, IBAC Deputy Commissioner, John Lynch, the Acting Chief Municipal Inspector, and Hannah Duncan-Jones from uh, Local Government of Victoria, who's the Director Responsible for the Implementation of the Local Government Act uh, 2020. They're coming together to talk with us about obviously election related integrity issues at this point of time, but also these standards of conduct, given that there's still a window of opportunity for people to, uh, to contribute to that conversation. So really looking forward to that. And I hope your calendar's free, Stephen, because I reckon you'll find that really interesting too. Chris, even if it wasn't, it would be. Um, that is a cracking panel. And actually one other thing that people could think about leading up to it too, though, in this topic, what are the roles of the officers? What are the yep. roles of the councillors? How do we get clarity around both of those uh, to best move forward? Now, Steve, um, I'm also conscious that we are less than a month away from the election period, the formal election period, which has an impact on, do you know where I'm going with this? It no, has an impact no, on the decisions that councils uh, can make, uh, as well as obviously uh, impact on, um, you know, how resources are used during election time, et cetera. Interesting to note, we've had some movement around CEO positions this week. Are you up to date with that? So there's a new CEO just been appointed at uh, Moody Valley, for example. Um, I've talked about this grey area of the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the period in which you can make these sorts of decisions ahead of the election period. And obviously, it's all above board. But isn't it interesting to see this sort of happening right now? Oh, look, absolutely, Chris. And, um, and I also noticed in the media that Ballarat Council are moving to commence a recruitment process for their CEO. Um, yes. And we've talked previously about the real risks associated with the fact that there does seem to be increased movement um, in CEO positions in that period after um, the council elections are held there. Some of that's normal, but equally, um, some of those decisions by newly elected councillors don't necessarily bode well uh, for the organisations or for the sector. It's, uh, it's a good opportunity to remind people of a piece of work that David Wolfe led when he was at the inspectorate around managing the employment uh, life cycle of the CEO. I'm sure that's on your, uh, well, there you go. Uh, I'm sure that's on your most read list, uh, Stephen. It's a great resource, isn't it? It is a cracking report, Chris. And the thing I really like about it is it goes to um, the mindset, the culture, the roles and responsibilities um, of all parties in terms of managing that kind of relationship. But in particular, um, the need for um, the elected council to be businesslike and display procedural fairness and good process in all aspects of the recruitment and employment right. process with the CEO. Steve, almost out of time. The, the only other thing I wanted to touch on with you is uh, the 1st of September is almost upon us. And that, of course, is the key date by which the first tranche of 
tasks, if you like, under the new Act are meant to be completed. I'm sure most, if not all, councils have that well in hand in terms of governance rules and public transparency policy committees, etc. But what would happen if Tuesday rolls around and some of that work hadn't been completed or been formally adopted by the council? Yeah, thanks for the question without notice, Chris. You know I love it when you do that. Um, I think there's two parts to it. One is that, and the words just elude me at the moment, but the 2020 Act is framed to basically say that councils can rely on the, 18, on the 1989 Act up to the 1st of September, and that's what makes it the due date. So, for example, if a council had been running a Section 86 delegated committee under the 1989 Act and had not got round to reissuing the delegation to the new committee, then effectively there is no delegation in place. And so what would have to happen in that circumstance is that um, any decisions that maybe that delegated committee were going to make would need to escalate back up, presumably to the council, until such time as the delegation is put in place. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, oh, go on. Yeah, no, 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 you can finish that thought and then I'll come Oh, no, I was only going to say someone raised with me the issue during the week too that um, a council they at, they found that um, they'd adopted a governance rule and then realised that something in the governance rules um, wasn't compliant with the 2020 Act. And in a sense, that's no different to a circumstance that I think many councils would have found themselves in with the local law that if, if there is any inconsistency, you move back. Um, default to the legislation and describe that in a particularly transparent way. Yeah, I think the language always, it's always going to be subservient to the legislation uh, under which it's, uh, it's made possible in the first place. Exactly. So just to that former point, um, the 1989 Act applies until these new elements come in, in respect of those elements. So I'm assuming the Act is still in place for some of the tasks that are yet to be brought in over the next 18 months or so. Yeah, and there's a rather excellent table on the Local Government Victoria website, Chris, about the fact that there are four tranches of changes coming in and anyone making decisions under either version of the Local Government Act would do well as a first step just to make sure that they're working off the correct legislation. All right, that uh, is fascinating as always, Steve. I don't know how we find things to talk about and people still watch it, so we'll keep doing it as long as they keep watching. I don't know uh, whether you sound surprised, Chris. <laughs> have a great week and always good to catch up. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Chris. Steve Cooper joining us on the Governance Update this week from the LGA Connect. <laughs>